Pat Robertson, welcome to the Herd Mentality. Thanks for your time and congratulations on your 127th birthday. You need to always have love. I agree. A fine place to start a discussion on the topic of homosexuality. And I'm a great advocate of love. Well, some might argue that that simply isn't the case. What is your position on homosexuality? You cannot accept it. I'm not gay myself, but can I not be supportive of the community? You cannot be an enabler. If they're living together as a homosexual and you're a Christian, you cannot say, I I accept this lifestyle. Hmm. Just quickly, could you give me an example of a slippery slope fallacy? Well, uh, do we accept... Uh, adultery? Do we accept fornication? Do we accept immorality? Is that something we're going to be forced to do? That's a really good one. Now, with your good friend Elton John, for example, could you demonstrate some hypocrisy, please, by describing how homosexuals benefit our community at large? You know, there's some homosexuals that have enormous capacity for artistic expression that, you know, you find a lot of this in the homosexual community. I agree with you. Very talented people. You think with such high praise you'd want to encourage equality, however? Well, the answer is no. Do you have a rational justification for that? I don't think we ought to be accepting of it. Sounds like you're just being judgmental. We're not judgmental. You're being judgmental. Well... The last thing you want to be is judgmental, but at the same time, you want to to be loving and warm and let them know that you love them. We're getting nowhere here. So, for the listeners, could you give us another example of a fallacy, please, by blowing something completely out of proportion? Right now, there's an incredible barrage of, uh, of activity forcing people to accept the homosexual lifestyle. Hmm. One last thing. Could you finish this sentence, please? Ray Comfort owns an eight-horsepower solid gold... But... Yes, well, good enough. Pat Robertson, thanks for your time. When it's all said and done, we cannot say we're going to put the imprimatur of the Christian church over something that God himself calls a sin. Welcome to the Herd Mentality, an eclectic weekly mix of atheistic, humanistic and scientific conversations with complete strangers. I've never met them and they've never met me, but we're throwing caution to the wind, taking a risk with a dodgy internet connection and, God willing, entertain you with some scintillating repartee. I'm your host, Questionable Adam, found on Twitter, Facebook and Google+, and it's time to meet our guests. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Herd Mentality. And with me down the line, I'm getting a free consultation from two psychologists. We have Julian, who goes by the Twitter handle at Psych Survivalist. Greetings. Hello. Whereabouts are you based? Well, I'm actually from New Mexico, but I do most of my work in Dallas, Texas. Very well. And also down the line, we have Jeremy at Berry, B-E-R-R-Y-P-H-D. That sounds important. Jeremy, how are you? I don't know about that. <laughs> I'm doing just great. How are you? Very well, thanks. Whereabouts are you based? Uh, right now, West Texas, tucked in between Lubbock and Amarillo in Texas, but uh, relocating, uh, ironically, to the central Texas area. So <laughs> To bring some sanity to the region. Sure. <laughs> well. Hoping. <laughs> Always yeah. hoping. So, gentlemen, you're both psychologists. What's the difference between a psychologist and a psychiatrist? A lot of money. Well, it's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> right. Basically, psychiatry is an MD, which means they're medical doctors and they are trained to prescribe medications for um, 
you know, mental conditions. Even if they're not capable of doing what we do, they are licensed to do that. They can do psychotherapy just the way we can. We're just trained in how the mind works. It's the difference between the mind and the physical brain. They mm. do brain, we do mind. So getting my hands on some of the good gear, perhaps I'm speaking to the wrong people. <laughs> oh, you need some meds, do you? <laughs> Get the man meds. Get the man some meds. <laughs> so psychology, what involved in that how do we define how do you use it best to ask the professor <laughs> well uh, i guess that largely depends on um, your position from my perspective since mostly what i'm doing is educating i guess to answer your question largely what i do from an educator's perspective is uh, address with my students a real world perspective of uh, how the mind works how the mind interacts with uh, your surroundings my area of uh, specialty is developmental psych so the all-encompassing uh, you know holistic view of the world around you connected to the mind so how people interpret the world around them certainly to some degree which i think probably uh, feeds well with some of the things we'll be discussing well yes a couple of my favorite topics one being confirmation bias which eh, i think we've covered on the show plenty of times before but specifically cognitive dissonance not only a wonderful podcast but a, an interesting interesting expression. So what is the definition of cognitive dissonance? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it to you again. I'll, I'll attempt it if you don't. Oh. <laughs> okay. Well, a good way that I describe this to my students when we talk about it in class is to explain to them that, you know, generally speaking, when you're talking about cognitive dissonance, you're talking about a mental process when a person's thoughts are not necessarily uh, experienced by someone else. If you think about it this way, you have a, a preconceived idea, and when new information presents itself that does not fit with your preconceived position, uh, it creates an, uns an uncertain feeling, sometimes a, a discomfort. I would agree with that and say it doesn't conform with reality, but and what he said is entirely correct. Dealing with cognitive dissonance, how do people typically process it? They get nervous. And thus resulting in the usual Twitter debate where they go, right, sorry, time to go to church, speak to you later. Right. <laughs> uh, well, if they're religious, yeah. If they're people like me, and Jeremy, I won't speak for Professor Jeremy, but if they're people like me, it's like if there's dissonance, I resolve it by trying to find out what's really going on. I investigate further. Right. So what would be a good way of getting your average punter on the street to do the same sort of mental process and identify where they're making mistakes and correct it? Well, yeah, I would say therein lies the challenge. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the truth is that we, we're not really nearly as good at incorporating new information when that information is in opposition of our previous information. When we get uh, confirmatory information, we, we process that right through. But it's the uh, the information that seems to uh, not support our previous thoughts that we have trouble with. It was pointed out to me by a previous guest, an, an author, Michael Sherlock. He was on the show before. And he mentioned to me that the area that processes the ego is the same area of the brain that processes belief. Now, I haven't spoken to a neurophysiologist to confirm this, and nor have I... Okay, I took it on face value. <laughs> and I didn't investigate I don't think you'll find a neurophysiologist who will confirm it, because the, the, the concept itself doesn't make sense neurophysiologically. Okay, so, so maybe I've been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe Michael Sherlock has been wrong. Well, but potentially, but perhaps I've also misconstrued his words or yeah. took away from it something else. So perhaps here's a fine example, listeners, of <laughs> getting it wrong. So if that's the case, what can I do? Adam, I'm trying to get you off the hook, actually. The issue seems to be whether 
the way a person thinks can be matched up perfectly with what they find using their scans with the, with the brain's functions. And my bet would be that's not going to happen anytime soon. So we need more research. If that's what we want to achieve. I, I would argue against that as a goal, but I understand that there are people who would want to pursue it, and I won't argue with them. Very well. Any thoughts, Jeremy? No, I, I, I agree. I think that that's a very difficult task from a, an evidentiary standpoint. I've often heard it said that there's no polite way to tell somebody that they're wrong. Is there a way of getting around that to make conversations with theists more engaging and more productive? Do you want to handle it, Jeremy, or shall I? <laughs> well, please, go ahead. <laughs> I don't tell people they're wrong. And the reason, there are a number of reasons that I don't. One is that what's right and wrong? And, and that seems like, you know, it's an open-ended question. That's really not my point at all. What they believe at the time makes sense for them. And if you pursue it further... And I think Jeremy would agree with me on this. What makes it right or wrong is whether or not what they think or what they believe allows them to be more functional in the world that they operate in. And I think that's really the whole purpose of all this. Oh, yeah, I don't, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that a lot of times in psychology in general, when we're talking about anything clinical, the word that gets tossed around a lot is maladaptive. And certainly we can all distinguish between a religious person's behavior that we would consider maladaptive and behavior that we would consider rather innocuous. Maladaptive in case anyone misses it, or you do, Adam, and I'm not trying to insult you, oh, is that I'm you're trying to, to adapt to your environment, and if what you believe or think keeps you from doing that, it's maladaptive. That's right. a great explanation for it. Being maladapted to your environment is clearly detrimental, and we can see the results of this. I think as free thinkers, we can observe the consequences of what is happening when people believe in things that clearly aren't true. For example, hearing voices to tell you to go and kill people. Well, actually, I think about a different example, which is it's much more mundane. If you think that faith is all you need in order to survive in the world, and I th actually think about this fairly often, go to a traffic light, stand there and close your eyes or get blindfolded and see if that'll get you across the street <laughs> and know when it's a green light or a red light. It, yeah. <laughs> it'd work 50% of the time, you would think. Well, yeah, or, or maybe you'll be on the amber and you won't really know. <laughs> <laughs> People who have faith clearly don't go and put themselves in these positions. Perhaps it's the passage from the Bible that instructs them to not test their God. It's not testing their God, it's testing the light. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> Actually, I was thinking about this, and I really thought we'd get into trouble, Adam, to be quite honest, because I, I don't consider myself an atheist, and I was thinking, well, what exactly am I? And on Twitter, I saw, uh, there was a tweet that appeared with Einstein, who said, and it was a quote from Einstein, and I'll accept it on faith, <laughs> that I don't believe in a personal God. And I thought, that's it exactly. I don't either. I don't think God looks like a human being, acts like a human being, does anything, has any predisposition of a human being, that God is something beyond us, and by giving him a human face, we're denigrating this being that is immense. And look up at the ninth sky and you see it. So what exactly are you saying here? Are you open to the idea that there is a, a divine party there? I think it's a divine party, but as soon as you give it any human attribute, you're denigrating it. Actually, denigrating is not even the right word. You're not accepting it as something that might be beyond you and might not be like you at all. Right. Jeremy, your thoughts? I mean, I have a 
slightly different perspective, I would assume. I am, I guess, by definition, an atheist. And I think that the Einstein quote is kind of interesting because I, Einstein is tossed around quite frequently on Twitter, ironically in both camps, because Einstein is occasionally uh, quoted as having said various statements alluding to God. He said plenty of things that are able to be mined. Right. M-I-N-E-D, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I understand what Julian is saying about higher, I don't want to use some Deepak word salad here, but, but a, a higher form of consciousness or something and not taking a human form. The, the, the idea of the personal God that the majority of the theists have sort of a vision of a personal God of some kind, that just does not fit within a rational framework to me. Well, it rubs me the wrong way. Exactly what Jeremy said rubs me the wrong way. You see, yeah. part of it is that when I'm home in New Mexico, I live at 7,200 feet. My view of the sky on certain nights is endless. And I actually pointed at the sky to my grandson and said, that's the face of God. Now, do I have any control over it through prayer or any other thing? I would hope not. It doesn't answer anything in terms of my personal actions, but it gives me the sense that it all fits together somehow. That's all. I get it by by just saying I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to sell anybody on anything. The one thing I will say, and my niece is an Episcopalian priest, by the way, is that, and I've told her this before, and she knows it very well, you'll never find me in a house of worship. I, well, you won't find me there. I don't feel comfortable there. It has nothing to do with how I feel about anything. My difficulty is that when you talk about theism and you talk about religion, it's just like, no, do I think there's something out there that puts the whole thing together? Yeah. Does it look remotely, even remotely like I don't think so. Just going back there, an Episcopalian priest, is this somebody who preaches to fish? <laughs> Actually, I'm just passing this along. I have no clue. I don't know that Episcopalian refers to Pisces or the, the constellation or anything. I mean, it seems to have come out of the Church of England. I think that she's very compassionate and helps a lot of people. And to me, that's the important thing. So I don't argue with that. I don't care what her beliefs are. Okay, on that, a lot of people who are of faith believe that they are doing what they're doing to help other people. And commonly, let's take Pat Robertson, for example, at the beginning of this show. Uh, he said, we have to love our gay brothers and sisters, but we can't accept it. In a situation like this, I view it quite clearly as doing more harm than good. How do we identify the threshold there as to what level of belief can be beneficial to somebody? Well, that's very interesting. I don't know whether or not this has been said before. I'm sure it's been said in some circles, but it's this idea of, you know, belief for belief's sake, which I think is inherently risky. I mean, especially if that belief is not grounded in reality, it's downright dangerous. I think that a belief that's not grounded in reality carries with it a lot of risk and a lot of potential danger. Think of the countless lives that are affected by even the most obscure of religious beliefs, like the idea of there being virgins greeting you upon your martyrdom or whatever. We're talking about a handful of people in the global scheme of things, but how many lives those handful of people affected? Mm. That's quite a large example, an extreme example. Sure. You can even draw it back to the belief that my prayer will cure my child of insert disease here. Right, right. And this this happens all the time. I and mean, recently in the press, there was a priest who decided to pray rather than accept intervention from the medics after being bitten by a snake. 
Then let me put a tricky question to you. Are there unfounded beliefs that people can hold that are beneficial to their self or their community? When you first brought this this question or something like it to my attention when we first discussed this podcast, the first person I thought of, uh, the first scholar and therapist that I thought of was Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning and How He Survived the Nazi Concentration Camps. And this is not to defend beliefs, but it is to acknowledge at least that in his case, a certain set of, uh, I don't know if it was a predisposition or or how he approached life, but it actually allowed him to survive the camps and continue on to become a successful therapist well into his 80s when he died surviving the camps. Mm. Right, yeah, a fine example to be sure. Let me break it down for you, because I also thought about this when you brought it to my attention. Mm -hmm. I thought of the John Lennon song, which I think in essence expresses an opinion that I basically agree with. Whatever gets you through the night is all right. <laughs> Fair enough. Jeremy, any final thoughts to add on that? I actually think the Frankel ex, uh, example is a great example on, on, a, on a large scale. And, and I have an, an interesting question. Maybe I, I know I'm not supposed to be asking the questions here, but <laughs> but uh, I'd, I'd be curious to hear what Julian has to say. I get asked this question quite often by theists and otherwise. What is the difference between a delusion and someone being religious? And I always find that a very difficult question to answer, because if I'm looking at a delusion from a clinical definition standpoint, certainly I can see religion fitting that paradigm fairly well. Unfortunately, we got we go back to that maladaptive statement when I think about it. That's where you need to go. Yeah. I mean, you need to go to whether or not a person's beliefs allow them to better adapt to their environment and their circumstance. I think that's bedrock. You know, that's what we're working on as psychologists. Sure. The only thing that I seem to do differently than most of my colleagues, I won't say all but most, is that that a lot of the discussion has to do with taking more factors into account that affect the people that I work with. It's like, yes, what you're saying makes sense, and let's look at all of the ways in your life, your personal life, this stuff manifests and where it comes from so that we can see what the meaning of it is. That, that would go back to Frankel very well, actually. What are the most challenging things you guys face in your day-to-day lives? professionally that's a great question oh, i have an interesting uh maybe perspective on on that particular question i am uh like a, as i said educator a, a university professor I, I have had some teaching opportunities offered to me because of work i've done but those opportunities were at private religious affiliated universities they want me to teach they say we want you to do this they want you to do that and then I have to fill out paperwork. And the paperwork always has a statement of faith, which I find perplexing because, you know, they want to have a certain type of person teach there. It's always very interesting in this neck of the woods because, as you said, if you want to talk about maladaptive, it would be better adaptive for me to be religious where I live. I simply can't. But if I was, I think that things would be a lot smoother. It's a very strange part of the world, I think, to live in. I'm sure there are stranger places, but but for someone not religious to be in a very predominantly Christian, heavily conservative part of the world. There are a lot of just innate challenges with 
with, with not holding those beliefs. How do your students process these beliefs? Because obviously you're talking about things that clearly challenge what their families have taught them and what their their social circle reinforces that's a great question well i I mean it really just depends i i have students who are eager for learning in general and so new information is very well received unfortunately i do also have students who when information is presented and that does not you know when they experience dissonance in the classroom not only do they have a lot of anxiety (laughs) but many drop the class Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, it happens quite frequently. That's shocking. It's almost easier not to face the dissonance than to face it. It is it's simply easier just to ignore it. I would have thought this is a core part of the topic. It's something you really have to accept and view and, and challenge yourself before you can challenge others. Well, and that, that's the difficulty is, I mean, there are real world consequences to this good news, bad news effect that we have. It's very easy for us to incorporate favorable information. But when we're presented with unfavorable information, we have an, just a simple aversion to it. That actually happens. And really, it's a good age group. I mean, I can't speak for all professors, but for me, you know, the 18 to 25 year old average college student, you know, they're kind of in a transitional period in their lives developmentally. And so for many, they're very spongy towards new information. And and that's, you know, ideal for a college student in general. But there are some whose belief systems are so heavily ingrained that they almost become aggressively against the idea of information that is not sync up with their beliefs or with what information they had previous. It can be rather vexing, if I'm being honest. Julian. Well, for my first thought actually was to ask Jeremy if he's a native Texan. <laughs> uh, I am actually. <laughs> I was wondering. Yeah, yeah no, uh, fair question, yeah. <laughs> well, no, it makes a very big difference. I'm hardly a native Texan. I came here to work. I consider my home now in New Mexico. I was originally from New York, and I spent many years in California, Northern California. And the only reason that I mention this is not to say I'm worldly, but to say that uh, culturally, I come from so many different places that being in Texas is a bit of a challenge. One of the delights that I discovered being here in Dallas, and if you ever get here, Jeremy, by the way, is are my mechanics. I love my mechanics. They're terrific. And so I'm sitting there having a beer with them. I sometimes join them. I don't always. Unfortunately, not often enough. And the question was almost exactly the same thing. I I don't remember exactly why it came up, but it had to do with my thinking about Texas mentality. I'm saying it more crudely than it was presented to me. And I, I would love to paint a picture of these guys because they're really, they're solid, you know, close to the earth. Physically, they're solid in every other way. And they're, they're bright. They're natively bright. They're not academically bright. But they're natively very bright. And those are the people I like to hang out with. And the question was somehow about Texas. And I said, basically, I had a question. What about critical thinking? Why does Texas have a problem with critical thinking? And he called his wife, who was a uh, school principal, to ask her that. And the answer that he came back to me, and it's not because he didn't know, I don't believe, but because he wanted to talk to his wife, who was actually plugged into the system, who actually educated people. And he came back to me and said that what she said is that it's the church's that really have a war on critical thinking. They're the ones that don't want the students in the Texas schools to think beyond the surface. (laughs) It's quite astute. And from what Jeremy was saying about his students dropping out of classes, because they're in a position where they can get the tools in that class for critical thinking, but the indoctrination has already put the roadblock there. And it's not 
a small roadblock. It's something that would have to get them to completely alter their worldview in order to pursue. You know, I call myself psych survivalist. What does it mean to me? That's what it means to me. You want to orient yourself to the real world? To me, the real world, bottom line is survival. Beyond that, we can flourish. But you need to know how to survive. And if you don't think critically, you're going to be run over by a truck. Mm, or end up buying any one of Deepak's books. Deepak of the universe. <laughs> I never read one, but I'll take your word for it. <laughs> I don't think he's read them either, just quietly. <laughs> Gentlemen, is there anything you would like to plug, a, a charity or any critical thinking resources that people might find useful or interesting? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, I couldn't even. I go to my website and see how I look at the world. I, I'm not trying to plug my own book, but I mean, it's, it's what I got. The Meaning of Life, a Child's Book of Existential Psychology. Fantastic. Where can That's we get it? Actually, if you go to my website, Psych Survivalist, Com, you will see four works that scroll across the bottom of the screen, one of which is that it's a picture book. The challenge that I presented myself when I wrote it years ago, interestingly enough, before I decided to become a psychologist, well, I thought it would be possible to explain something as complex as existential psychology simply and with pictures. So this is a picture book. Fantastic. I, I did not know that. <laughs> that sounds very interesting. <laughs> you know, I would be remiss not to mention just because it's the area that I, you know, my research is em emphasized in is Alzheimer's research. And so I would say that anyone interested in a, a good charitable organization could visit Alzheimer's Association. It's just uh, www.alz.org. They have many local, regional charitable organizations that are tied to their website. So it's a good place to go for research on the, the disease and, and information such as that. Sounds like a wonderful cause. Yes, I agree. We've actually discussed Alzheimer's research on this show previously with Dr. Dave Hawkes. Mm -hmm. uh, he ran a, a charity to raise some money so they could develop different viruses and modify those viruses to target specific areas of the brain to counteract Alzheimer's. There's some actually really, really compelling research going on right now. I had recently read a, a study out of the medical school in, at Harvard University doing something on a, what sounded a little bit like a, a vaccine. I hate to sit, use the word vaccine. That's a that's a strong word. But certainly it looks like that's what they're trying to work on. Mm, prevention better than cure. Certainly. Very well. Julian and Jeremy, psych survivalist and at Berry PhD. Thank you very much for coming on the show and uh, fixing my brain for me. <laughs> Did we do a good job? That's all I want to know. <laughs> Give me plenty to think about. Thanks for having Thank you. Bye-bye. Herd mentalists, questionable Adam here from the year 2074, piggybacking my signal across North Korea's subspace transmission link. In this alternate timeline, the United States of Earth has rewritten the Constitution to include the 472nd Amendment, Thou shall not be an atheist meaning that the four remaining atheists are in hiding at living waters, the last place the overlords will look. We continue our fight regardless for a more secular world. You have helped. The logs show that Genevieve, Dan, Kylie, Karen, Kefiri, Adam, Mark, Colin, Liam and especially Peter have supported the show at patreon.com slash herdmentality, meaning that this week we won't have to rely on boiled Bible stew as our only source of fibre and we can afford some protein to slow us down. This is made possible by you, the people who support the show. 10% of all proceeds from the show go to kiva.org, supporting women in developing nations to further their education. 
you'll notice that the show has an improved format with a consistent release date every Thursday and a little more consistency with the comedy sketches. You only have yourselves to blame for this. Leave a review for the show on iTunes or Stitcher and in return, I'll leave you in peace. Future Questionable Adam, signing out. And down the line with me right now, we have at Fear Blandness. Holly, hello. Hi. Whereabouts are you from? I'm living on the Sunshine Coast right now. And that's clearly in Australia. Yes, it is. <laughs> mm. What do you study? I'm currently doing my PhD in neuropsychology. Very well. And there was something that you and I, we, we've just met, but there was something that piqued my interest regarding Joan of Arc and how beliefs are formed and something to do with epilepsy. Talk me through it. Yeah, well, I'm obviously interested in neuroscience and the brain and how it can make us believe things that, dare I say, aren't true. Yeah, there is good evidence lately that's come out to show that religious visions or happenings in the brain are caused by temporal lobe epilepsy which is a little part of your brain that when it fires erratically as it does with epilepsy and having seizures can make you see religious things I guess they've done a few experiments where they've stimulated the temporal lobe artificially 80% of the experimental subjects reported a feeling of not being alone or describing it as a religious sensation so that's kind of been linked to quite a few historical figures who have been said to have had grand religious religious experiences when in fact it could have actually just been epilepsy, such as Joan of Arc. So epilepsy, I was of the understanding that it's a binary experience. You either have a seizure, which encompasses basically your whole brain, mm -hmm. or it's nothing at all. We just continue on as normal. But you're suggesting that certain areas of the brain can undergo a seizure in itself. I think they're called petite mal seizures. So smaller ones within different parts of the brain. As yeah, you're right in that most of them are usually the entire brain and takes over the entire brain. But there are some that do just target specific parts. And uh, this one targets the temporal lobe, which is also responsible for kind of religious feelings or spiritual feelings, because obviously it's been around for longer than religion has. Hmm. So these visions that people have, they're obviously linked to experiences and their own education. So say a Christian wouldn't experience Allah or Buddha or Thor. Exactly, exactly. And they, they've actually interviewed people with this type of epilepsy from all different types of religions and even some atheists. I remember watching the atheists say, well, I know it's not real because I'm an atheist. I, I have strong atheist views. But while it's happening, it's the realest thing to me. I suppose it's just like living your normal life and believing that everything you touch and see and hear is real, except your brain's actually tricking you. So, yeah, a lot of the time it is related to the culture that they were brought up in. Is it possible to perform an on-air diagnosis for Ray Comfort? <laughs> uh, I'm not qualified for that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Joan of Arc, what took place and how, how do we know? that this is likely to have happened? Well, of course we can never know. A lot of it is up in the air. But I, I, I do think it's a good theory. I think it's possible that a lot of these very important people in history who have said to have done important things through God or through God's uh, will or voice, it's quite likely that they really truly did believe, as the epilepsy and seizures make you do, because it's your brain, you don't have any other way to experience things, that what they were doing was really correct and really real. 
So knowing this now, is it possible to now begin diagnosing people in a medical sense for religion? It's a tough one because how do you separate who might have epilepsy and who mightn't? Some people might just think they're talking to God or think that they're getting visions, but not to the extent that people with the temporal lobe epilepsy may have. You'd have thousands of people that you'd have, or millions probably, that you'd have to test and it just wouldn't be feasible. So I think it's the really intense visions where people truly do think they have a mission from God or and, and it's very um, persistent throughout their life as epilepsy is. I think if you were to try and apply it to the general population, then you'd find that not many people do have it, but a lot of people just genuinely believe that they can talk to God because mm. they've been brought up to think that way. Is there any residual trace for this temporal lobe epilepsy? I've kind of only looked into the way that it affects the religiosity. So, yeah, I'm not quite sure. I could, I'm sure there's some research suggesting that they may or may not be. So, yeah, whether it uh, goes on for your whole life or whether you can kind of get better from it, I'm not quite sure. Very well. Any final thoughts? Uh, no, I just think it's a really fascinating thing, the connection between the brain and religion. Well, obviously, religion is the brain. So <laughs> it's kind of nice to be able to not put a label on historical figures or important figures who believe that they can talk to God and get messages from God. But to think, oh, you're probably just having a little seizure there. <laughs> it's not quite real. <laughs> Fascinating food for thought. Holly at Fear Blandness, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Raygate, the adventures of Ray and Rayman. G'day, Raylene. Hi, Ray. What's going on? Really good news, Ray. Mm-hmm. Our profits are through the roof again. Business is booming. Excellent. After that uh, electric telephone phone-in. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I've even made enough money to get my asshole bleached again. Oh. <laughs> the sun is shining. This is good news, I presume. It's excellent news. I mean, this is the first time we haven't been in the red. I think you um should treat yourself to a little something, Ray, to celebrate. Oh, excellent. All right, well, I've been contemplating some upgrades to the 8-horsepower solid gold butt plug. It's running smoothly, but uh, th there's a couple of attachments I've seen on the interwebs that I think I'd quite like to install. Well, would you like me to go on Goggle for you? Yeah, oh, the Goggle, if, uh, yes, any butt plug engineers? Get on the goggle, yes. Uh, but look, I don't want to uh, support any of those nasty atheists. Do you think there'd be a like a Christian butt plug engineer? Yeah. Well, let me just goggle the words Bible, right? And possibly loading the butt plug uh, yes, or something right. that, like that. That, that would work. Up. Yes. Okay. That no, not that one. Uh, all the Bible reload. Reloading Bibles. I wonder if they reload yeah. butt plugs. Yes, all right. Well, uh, get them on the line. Let's have a quick chat. All righty, then. Hi, this is Jake from The Bible Reloaded. Hi there. This is Raylene from Living Waters, our Red Comfort's personal assistant. I understand that you're an engineer. No. Well, your page says that you're an engineer and that you've reloaded Bibles. Oh. You know, maybe you're confused. I mean, it's just a title. We don't actually reload Bibles. Oh, whatever. Listen, Jake, do okay. you um, know anything about butt plugs? Very, very little. Hardly anything. I'm a bit worried about admitting this or that. <laughs> well, basically, my boss, Ray Comfort, 
He's looking to upgrade his um, eight horsepower solid gold butt plug. Is that something you can help us with? I mean, we're willing to pay very handsomely. Ha- handsomely, huh? Yeah. But, yeah, sure. What kind of butt plug is it? It's an eight horsepower solid gold butt plug. It's a bespoke item. So shall we see you at about two o'clock? If- sure, especially if I'm being handsomely paid. Yeah, well, you're looking at 25,000 shekels an hour. That's like 14 bucks an hour. <laughs> All right. Count me in. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, we'll see you later. Yes, ma'am. Hi, I'm here about the eight-horse-powered solid gold butt plug. Oh, hi. It must be Jake from the Bible Loaded or Reloaded Bible. Anyway, whatever. Bible Reloaded. It's a pretty big deal. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no one cares. Follow me. Okay. Wow. Someone told me there was a bunch of samurai swords on the walls. They were right. <laughs> uh, g'day. Hi, Ray. Uh, you must be the uh, engineer. I'm whatever you need me to be. Right. Well, as long as you're not an atheist, that's uh, that's fine. No. Now, no. No. Atheists are dumb. Oh, excellent. Right. Here's the object in question. Mm. It's an eight sure. horsepower solid gold butt plug. It's a one of a kind. What sort of upgrades would you recommend? Mm, well, what do we got on it already? I mean, it's uh, it's lightweight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's obviously gold plating. That's clearly carbon no, no, no. fiber. No, no, no. It's solid gold. Solid gold. That's clearly that's malleable. Gold is pretty malleable. So mm-hmm. uh, that probably goes. That just. Pops right in, doesn't it? Not yet. Um, how many speeds does it have? Oh, a lot. And it's, it's even got a turbo. Oh, yes. wow. I would suggest two upgrades. Right. If you buy both, it's a bonus package. The first one I would suggest is a silencer. That sounds very discreet. Modesty so, is hottesty, the, if you the, know what I mean. Oh, right. So the sort of thing I might be able to use in an elevator with other people? Yeah. I mean, you could use it in a classroom if you're <laughs> reading a book to the children. I mean, you could just... And they'd never know. It has a low hum that only, like, dogs and hummingbirds can discern. Right. <laughs> right. Well, and probably Ray Lee as well. Right. And the other one is a, it's a new one. It's straight from the factory. You'd be one of the first to have it in the whole world. Oh. Um, it's a scope. Oh, what's this for? For more accurate well, insertion? Not only for more accurate insertion, but it also seeks out, detects, and destroys polyps. I can't argue with that. That sounds like a wonderful bonus. Yeah. All right. Let's get to work. That looks fantastic. It's like a bought one. It's it's like it's brand new. So shiny, Ray. Look at it. It's beautiful. Now, what precautions should we take in terms of maintaining it? I have to go back to my shop. I have to get a calibration tool. So do not use it until I come back tomorrow. So just give it a rest for the night. Tomorrow I'll come back and you can uh, use it at your uh, own discretion. Excellent. All right. Thank you for your efforts here today, Jake. Uh, We'll see you tomorrow. No problem. Hey, uh, I'm here to recalibrate the uh, butt plug that we did yesterday. Uh, Ah, um... Yes. Hello, Jake. Hi, are you Lincoln? What's the matter with you, Ray? Uh, Oh, I I feel like... You're kind of waddling. I feel like I've just won the Melbourne Cup. There's something not quite right. Ray? You don't look right. 
I had a look at it and it said it was only out by 0.2 microns, but clearly at the, at the velocity that this thing's capable of operating, it's Ray, did not you, quite... did you use the butt plug? Uh, well, wouldn't they? Yes. <laughs> Wait for it. This is a professional show, not like yours. (laughs) (laughs) It's an eight horsepower solid glow. You know, I've always really struggled with the butt plug. It's just, oh, right. Can't say it properly. Get it stuck in my mouth. (laughs) Difficult to pronounce. Hard to get the tongue around. Hi, I'm uh, here about the uh, eight horsepower solid gold blood plug. So you struggled with the pop plug. <laughs> did I say? Did I say blood plug? Yes. You did. It's quite a mouthful, isn't it? Hold on, it? hold on, wait, wait. Hi, I'm uh, here about the eight horsepower solid gold blood plug. Blood plug. <laughs> solid gold butt plug. Hi, I'm here about the eight horsepower solid gold blood blood plug. <laughs> butt plug. Here, I'm just gonna do it separately, and you're gonna mix Jesus. it. Jesus, ready? You- Shut up. Struggle hey, more than me. Quiet, raw, quiet, be quiet. Eight horsepower, solid gold butt plug. My God, that was disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> this must be the first time ever that we've made Raylene uncomfortable. <laughs> it's like a what? It's like a bought one. A it's bought it's, it's one. one that's been bought. That's like a really Aussie or well English expression as well. It's like Never a bought one means that. it looks brand new. <laughs> okay. You didn't even protest, you just went, yes. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>